The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. About two months ago, we uh, announced to you that uh, Stephen and Julia, our dear friends and colleagues in ministry, been with us off and on since 1998, uh, will be leaving us once again. And as they leave us this time, they head off to New York City, where they'll be involved in church planning ministry. You received an insert when you walked in this morning, explained some of those details about it. So would you welcome Stephen and Julia, very familiar faces to our stage. Bro, share with us a little bit about uh, where you guys are headed and what you're going to be doing and uh, where you're at. You got a microphone? Is that working? Put the light on. Yeah, so I just want to share a little bit about the need. Um, so except for Boston, uh, New York City is the least reached city in the United States, which means that only 3% of New York City claim to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I, th- I think I shared before. Um, just to give you a, an idea of what that actually means, it means that there are actually... Uh, more believers in, proportionally speaking, in Beijing than there are in New York City. Um, so, so we definitely need to send people out east, but, but they could stop there and, and there'd be plenty of work to do. Um, as you can see in the south and midwest, there is one evangelical church per thousand people. To reach the same saturation in New York, uh, we'd need to plant approximately 20,000 churches. But there's a problem, right? So the the, most Western cities are growing at about 125,000 people a year. So let's say we wanted to plant a church, not for every thousand, just one for every 5,000, a little less ambitious, right? We'd have to plant, obviously, 25 churches every year just to keep up with the growth. So, so the, the, the <laughs> we're not doing that. We're not even close to doing that. Um, so that, that gives you kind of an idea of, of the need uh, that, that, that is in, in New York City. It's kind of a bittersweet experience for uh, Stephen and Julia as well as for us. They've been part of our church body, part of our family for a lot of years. This is one of those good sending offs where uh, it's God launching them into a venue that uh, they feel called to. So why don't you address that uh, just for a second, if you will. Yeah, um, it, it is. It, to, to be leaving here is to be it's our home, it's our family since 1998, um, and it always, always will uh, be that way for us. Um, but about uh, three years ago, Julia and I started praying about, about uh, planting a church, and we thought, if we're going to do this, it should be in a, in a part of the country, in a secular northeast, where there really isn't much going on in terms of church and Christianity. Um, and so we were thinking of Boston, and we thought Philadelphia, and, and we, we actually said, definitely not New York. Um, and, and, it was, and, and, it, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of those situations where it's like, oh, please God, don't send me to Outer Mongolia. Right, you're going to Outer Mongolia. It wasn't like that. Uh, but but it, we've always loved New York City. But it, but it was this, this sense of, it's just too big, too crowded, too much of everything, really. And, and we we couldn't envisage life and ministry there. Uh, but about uh, two years ago, we took a staff trip together, and we, we sat down with some ministry leaders there. We sat down with a church planter, J.R. Vassar, um, and I'm very grateful to him. We, we we got talking to him, and he said, look, stop thinking about 8.2 million people. Stop thinking about Midtown and Times Square and all the tourists. Um, there's a neighborhood over here. Uh, it's about neighborhood. It's about 200,000, 250,000 people. Um, but but it's, it's, an, it's a neighborhood over here. And uh, con- consider this. This is what this neighborhood's like. And um, look, look at this area. And the Lord has actually gone before them. There's some things already happening there. Some uh, partnerships are available. And uh, t- tell us about this map before we yeah, get to those so, other things. So um, th- this is the Upper West Side, which is where we're looking at. Right at the top of the box is Morning, uh, Morningside Heights and the, and the Columbia University. 
Um, and so we're, we're looking to plant a church in near the top of that red, red box there. To, to give you an idea of what these, these places are like, Upper East Side, on, on the other side there, that, that's kind of more business type, slightly more conservative, social climbers. Um, I was told, uh, think of the TV show Sex and the City. On, on, the, on the Upper West Side, it's more progressive liberals, academics, um, arts, artsy types, um, they've got this Juilliard's there, Columbia's there, uh, and, they, and they said, think of a, a bunch of episodes of Seinfeld back to back. That's the Upper West Side. So. That's great. And uh, we're, we're saying there's some partnerships going before you, some God's paving a way already, opening some doors of opportunity. Yeah, um, we're, we're very grateful. They've, they've been very welcoming. Uh, we're going to actually start working with Apostles Church. There's about four churches in the Apostles Church network in New York. And um, they've basically said, look, you come work with us on staff for the next year, year and a half, and uh, we'll, we'll give you the people who commute from that area. We'll just give them to you. you can, we'll help you get launched, um, which is a gift. I mean, that, that's incredible. So we're, we're going to be pray for our partnership with them. They've been great. Uh, pray for our partnership with um, a guy called Jim Black who works for Christian Union on Columbia campus. I was talking to him last week, and he, this year he's got 200 students signed up in Bible studies. Uh, on cl- it's, that's incredible, I mean, at, at a place like, campus like that. So that's really, yeah. So we, we're very grateful for, for Jim Black and, and those guys. And then, and then pray for our partnership with Redeemer Presbyterian. We're going to be, many of you have been blessed by Tim Keller's ministry, and uh, we're, we're going to be working somewhat with them as, as, as well. God's already begun to supply for their needs. Seventy percent of their needs have been met. They've sent letters to uh, close friends and family members and uh, leaders in our body. And so what we'd like to do is have you do two things. First of all, we want you to pray. Uh, They need prayer warriors. It's a dark place. A large church in New York City is a couple of hundred people. And they're going to go. There are a couple of families prayerfully considering joining them in this venture. And uh, maybe God's touching your heart uh, to go there. And uh, second thing, we need to give. We need to give to, uh, we want to send them out fully supported. Uh, Lord willing, they'll take off the end of next month, the end of November. So it's pretty quick. And uh, so we'd like to be generous, get them launched, get them out of here, and uh, begin the work that God has called them to. Uh, it is bittersweet for us. We love them. They love us. This is one of those good times when a church can say we're sending our best. We're sending our best to go and do the work that God has called them to do. So it's with great delight that we uh, submit them to you. Uh, the elders have approved this, and uh, we send them on their way with God's blessing. So be generous and uh, be prayerful. So you can't all come up here, but uh, you can place your hands in this direction as I pray over our dear friends. Father, thank you for Stephen and Julia. Father, thank you for uh, many years of co-laboring together, many years of uh, service, uh, many years of being colleagues in ministry. And God, now as we launch them, we're grateful. We're grateful for the call you've placed upon their lives. We're grateful to see what you're going to do. We pray blessing over them. But I pray you'll provide them a place to live. I pray that you'll provide for them financially. I pray that as we undergird them in prayer that you would do a work that can only be described as a work of your spirit through them. So, Father, we thank you for these partnerships that are being formed. We thank you now that you're touching spirit of God, the lives of those who need to know the Savior, neighbors where they're going to live, folks they'll come in touch with. And, Father, we look forward to hearing of the good work that you're going to do through them. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you thank these guys once again for their faithfulness, their body, and... You know, these are good times, and uh, it's kind of like launching your own kids when you've been together for 
that long and doing that. When we first met them, they were brand newly, brand new, newlyweds, brand new, newly, or they just got married, basically. <laughs> and uh, now to send them off is uh, delightful, but bittersweet as well. Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles or your apps, would you open them or turn them on to the second chapter of Acts? We continue our study in that great book, The Power of the Gospel. Just going to read to you two verses, 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 2, and then we'll backtrack and look at a large section. Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. And... God raised him up. Wow. There it is. You killed him, but God raised him up again. And he put an end to the agony of death. Father, we thank you that the Savior came. He lived. He died. But he's alive right now. We rejoice in that news. Amen. You also heard in the announcements that Amy Jez, one of our missionaries, homegrown missionary right here at TBC, she's in France, she'll be a table in the hallway. Amy, are you in here this hour? Where are you? Are you in here? Stand up if you're out there somewhere. There we go, back over there. Welcome Amy Jez back to TBC after being gone for a number of years. Peter bravely pulled out his sword and whacked off the ear of a soldier in the garden. I mean, he pulled out his sword, whacked off the ear of a soldier in the garden. He, he was a brave man for a few minutes because in, in a few hours, a servant girl would identify him as a follower of Jesus and he would curse the girl and deny the Savior. He would curse the girl and deny the Savior. Peter was bold and brave one minute and scared and denying the next. Now Christ has gone, he's ascended into the heavenlies, and he's given the apostles an assignment. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and by the way, it's a verse we should all commit to memory. Let me challenge you, over the course of the next several months, we can all memorize one verse. It's not that hard to do. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, wait here. He says, you shall receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in where? In Jerusalem. Talk to me. Judea. Samaria. And the uttermost parts of the earth. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's future. He's saying you need to wait here till the Spirit of God comes. And that's what happened at Pentecost that Stephen preached about two weeks ago. You shall remain here until the Spirit comes. And after the Spirit comes, you're to be my witnesses. Where? First of all, Jerusalem. Let me remind you what took place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place where the Jewish leaders who crucified Christ lived. Jerusalem was a place where the mobs gathered together and Pilate says, here's Barabbas, and they screamed out, release unto us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Jerusalem is a place where the crowds had turned on Christ, where the leaders had turned on Christ, where the disciples had hidden in fear because of what had been done to Christ. Jerusalem was the place that they had been and feared and ran and struggled the most. Be my witnesses, he said, in Jerusalem. Would they? Would you? Knowing what had just happened and what you'd seen and what you experienced, that the one you were following had been crucified and that everyone had stood against you and that you risked the same fate. You could be the next one stapled to a tree. You could be the next one to have your life taken. You could be the next one to have your neck in a noose. You could be the next one to be ostracized by family. You could be the next one to lose your job. Would you speak openly and willingly and boldly and bravely of the Savior? See, that's the assignment they were given. 
You shall receive power when the Spirit of God comes upon you, which just happened at Pentecost, and then you'll be my witnesses, first of all, in Jerusalem. That's among your family, among your friends, in your neighborhood, among your colleagues. Would you do that? Well, it's easy to say, yeah, I would do that back then. My question is, are you doing it right now? You see, are you impacting your Jerusalem for the Savior? Because that's one of the applicational questions we're going to ask along the way. That's the ministry they have been given. That's what they were supposed to do. And that's what we're supposed to do as well. Will you be my witnesses in your Jerusalem? The first sermon by an apostle was preached by Peter. That should come to us as no surprise. Peter's a spokesman of the discipleship band, and he's the one who speaks. Let me, let me do this. Let's get the outline established and settled before we go any further. Some of you OCD, you want to take notes, you want to fill in blanks. Right, we're going to do this deductively. I'm going to give you all the answers, and I'm going to try and keep you awake during the sermon. How's that? So, so here are the answers. You ready? Get your pen out, fill in the blanks. What Peter does in this sermon, first of all, he explains Pentecost. So it's Pentecost explained, and then it's Jesus proclaimed, and then it's the gospel embraced. So so it's a very simple outline. It's a three-point outline. You know that Peter not only a preacher, I'm a preacher as well. Pentecost is explained, Jesus is proclaimed, the gospel is embraced. Well, Pentecost is explained. That's the first thing that happens here. Uh, Peter explains what happened at Pentecost because there's a question about it. I, I mean, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago when Stephen preached Pentecost, an amazing event, Pentecost, you might say, well, what is Pentecost? Pentecost is actually the fourth annual feast in the calendar year for the Jews. It's the fourth feast. It celebrates the harvest. It celebrates the harvest. And so it only makes sense that the church will be born this day because for 2,000 plus years we've been celebrating the harvest, the harvest of folks coming into the kingdom of God. And so on Pentecost, the fourth annual feast in the Jewish calendar year, the church is born. It's celebrating the harvest. For 2,000 plus years we've been celebrating the harvest as well. Pentecost is a birthday of the church. It's a Jewish feast, a Jewish festival. Well, on this particular day, an amazing thing happened, and they're in the upper room, they're waiting, they're all together in one place, it says in chapter 1 of verse 2, they hear this noise, and they see these tongues, and then they hear people speaking in tongues, and and then all of a sudden, look at verse 6, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each one hearing them speak in their own language. Do you understand what's happening there? You people only understand Chinese. You guys only understand German. You guys only understand Spanish. You guys only understand Czech. You guys only understand Russian. You guys only understand... You get my drift, what we're doing here? You guys don't understand much. Oh, no, I'm just... So, so I'm speaking in English, and you're hearing in Chinese. And I'm speaking in English, and you're hearing in German. And I'm speaking in English, and you're hearing in Spanish. And I'm speaking English, and you're hearing in... What was your language? Whatever your language was. And, and you, I'm, I'm speaking and you're hearing in Russian. This miracle is taking place. And so everybody looks at what's happening. And I, I mean, you've got to admit, if you were there or if you were an onlooker, you would think, what in the world is happening here? What's happening? I, I mean, I, 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 I hear this guy speaking in his language, but I'm understanding it in my language. In fact, they've got that question. If you drop down to verse 13, they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What in the world's happening here? And some guy said, I can tell you what's happening. They're drunk. They're drunk. They're acting like a bunch of drunk people. Look at verse 13. They were mocking them, saying, they are full of wine. It's a bewildering experience. They're amazed. They're perplexed. 
And so the explanation they give is they're talking out of their mind, so they have to be drunk. So Peter responds to that. Somebody said, you know, Peter's a preacher. They ask a simple question, and they get a full sermon in return. And Peter preaches. The first thing he tells them what's not happening, and he tells them what's happening. He tells them what's not happening, and he tells them what's happening. He says, let me tell you what's not happening. What's not happening is in verse 15. These men are not drunk, as you are saying. It is only the third hour of the day. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Jews engage in the exercise of synagogue on feast days. They abstain from eating and drinking until noon. He says it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's drunk. Nobody drinks on a feast day before noon. They're not drunk. This is what's not happening. Okay, Peter, so what is happening? Well, he gives an answer. Look at verse 16. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So Peter says, let me tell you what's happening. What you see happening on the day of Pentecost is what Joel, the Old Testament prophet, spoke about. Joel, the Old Testament prophet, he spoke about this particular day and what's going to be happening here. Well, what happened? You look at verse 17. It shall be in the last days. The last days there, I, I, I take it to be from the time the church was formed until the time that Christ returns. It shall be in the last days. I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bondservants, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit. So twice in two verses he says, I'm going to pour forth my spirit. In these last days, he said, this is a fulfillment of what Joel the prophet talked about. Certain things are going to happen in the last days. The most important thing is the pouring forth of the spirit. He says, in the last days, the Spirit of God is going to be poured forth. Now, what does that mean? The Greek word for pour forth is an interesting word. It's the image of rain coming down to refresh the parched earth. That's the concept. It's rain coming down to satisfy the thirst of the earth. When the Spirit is poured forth, it's the Spirit coming down, the rain coming down in the analogy, to quench the parched souls of men and women. And twice he uses that word. So the key thing to note here, this is a time when the Spirit of God is being poured out. What he's saying in in 2.17, this is something new. This is something different. This is the fulfillment of what Joel was saying. These are the last days. This is the beginning. It's a new beginning. It's a new era. It's a new time. It's a new creation. It's the church. Up until now, the church did not exist, but now you've got a new era, you've got a new time, you've got a new creation, you have the church. And the Spirit is being poured out on how many? All mankind. It's being poured out on you, all mankind. In this new age, in this new creation, in this church, it's not going to be Jewish only, it's not going to be Gentile only, it's not going to be male only, it's not going to be female only, it's not going to be Israeli only, it's not going to be American only, it's not going to be Republican only, it's not going to be Democrat only, it's not going to be rich only, it's not going to be poor only, it's not going to be black only, it's not going to be white only, it's not going to be Baptist only, it's not going to be Bible church only, it's not going to be Church of Christ only, only don't tell them they think they are. Just kidding, I've got a number of Church of Christ friends. He says, this is on all mankind. This is a pouring forth of the Spirit upon your sons and daughters, both genders, upon young men and old men, all ages, upon your bond servants. He's talking to free people, free in bond, free and slave. Folks from every strata will be included in this new creation called the church. Wow. 
He's saying something is happening here that's different from before. It's a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And what's happening is the Spirit of God is being poured out in a new way. You see, in Old Testament times, the giving of the Holy Spirit was given for special enablement to only select people. For instance, you go back and read through the Old Testament, you found Saul possessed the Holy Spirit. You'll find David possessed the Holy Spirit. Guys like Gideon and Samson. And so the giving of the Holy Spirit, I, I've taught this many times here. I, I, I use four words to differentiate between the Old Testament and New Testament times or uh, the, the time of the law and time of the church regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. What differentiates the church age from any other age is the resurrected Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit to all believers. And so in Old Testament times, the Spirit was given to some believers for special enablement. So it was selective. And it was also temporary. The Spirit left Saul. The Spirit left Samson. David prays in Psalm 51 after sin with Bathsheba, cast not your spirit from my presence. And so in Old Testament times, under the law, what we find is the giving of the Holy Spirit was selective for special enablement, selective and temporary be the two words there. Since that time, from Pentecost forward, the giving of the Holy Spirit is universal to all believers and also permanent, not temporary, but permanent. In Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. So it teaches us that the Spirit of God seals our hearts until the day of redemption, the day we come into the presence of Christ. One of the reasons you cannot lose your salvation is because you've been sealed permanently with the Spirit of God. So in Old Testament times, selective and temporary. New Testament times, universal to all believers and permanent. And so Peter stands before them and says, this is a fulfillment of Job's prophecy. See, the amazing thing about this section, some people will say, well, gosh, we're going to prophesy, we're going to have visions, we're going to dream dreams. That's not the amazing thing about this section. That happened in Old Testament times. The amazing thing is the Spirit of God is now being poured out on all people. When you come to faith in Jesus, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, indwells you, lives in you, and fills you. And we should say, praise God, glory, hallelujah. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that part of the Godhead would indwell us and would live within us. So Peter's saying this is what happened at Pentecost. Joel's prophecy about that day took place. But I also believe some of this has not yet happened. I believe some of this is yet to be fulfilled. For instance, look at verse 20. In that time, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon will be turned into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So in verse 17, it talks about the last days. In verse 20, it talks about the great day of the Lord. The great and glorious day of the Lord is that time just before the return of Christ, a time of great judgment. And so I believe some of these things have been fulfilled, some are yet to be fulfilled. Still looks ahead to future fulfillment. Two quick applications and we'll move on. Application number one, if the third person of the Trinity indwells you, how can we not ask him to fill us and to control us every single day of our lives? Let me state that again. The third person of the Trinity indwells you. How would you why would you live your life apart from him? Why would you not daily ask him to fill you, to control you, to guide you? Dale Moody was a great evangelist of the 1800s, and there were a group of pastors gathered together in Boston trying to decide who to invite to a crusade in Boston. And several of the older pastors suggested they invite Dale Moody because of the way God was using him and the Spirit of God was using him. A younger pastor who was not in favor of inviting Dr. Moody stood up and said with a note of sarcasm, from the way you men talk, you think Mr. Moody has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. The room became deathly quiet. 
Finally, an older, wiser pastor stood before the group and said, Young man, Mr. Moody does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of you? The Spirit of God so controls and fills that man that the fruit of the Spirit are evident, the character of the Spirit are evident. The Spirit of God has a monopoly on that woman. The Spirit of God has a monopoly on that man. You see, there are those that would teach, well, you need the second work of the Spirit for that to happen. That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit's a person. It's not a pill that you can segment and divide and take part of it today and part of it tomorrow and part of it next day. Holy Spirit is a person. At the point of your salvation, you're indwelt by the Spirit. That's a mark of the New Testament age. I told our men on Thursday morning, we're studying 1 Corinthians, the issue is not that you need more of the Holy Spirit. The issue is that the Holy Spirit needs more of you. It's you submitting to the Spirit of God every single day. And so when we look at this, at this section, we see that, that, that that's a work of the Spirit of God, and, or the Spirit of God indwells you, so how could we not be controlled by a second application? A couple of months ago, I had a friend come to my office, and he asked a penetrating question. He said, Gary, why does nothing sensational happen at TBC? Not too many people ask you that question, do they? Gary, why, why does nothing sensational happen at TBC? I, meaning, why don't we have folks standing up and sharing visions or dreams or prophecies or words of knowledge or speaking in tongues and having that interpreted? Why doesn't that happen at TBC? Why do spectacular things not happen at TBC? So I listened for a little while and then I said, Brother, let me share with you. Sensational things are happening here. Maybe not in the way you would desire them to be seen, but let me tell you, things are happening. Let me, let me show you what I meant by that. I'm, I'm asking you to help me. How many of you have struggled with an addiction? Drugs, alcohol, pills, pornography, an eating disorder? But now you have been set free or no longer in bondage because of the work of the Spirit of God in your life. How many of you have been set free that way? Would you stand right now? Would you help me out? Would you stand right now? You've been set free from drugs, alcohol, porn, an eating addiction, whatever it might be. And take, take a look around this room right now. That is a sensational work of the Spirit of God in this body. Keep, keep standing. Would you keep standing? Just remain standing for a moment. How many of you had marriages that were dead or dying, but God has refreshed and restored that marriage, and now you can stand with your spouse right now? How many of you would do that to show the sensational work of God in this body right now? Would you stand right now? Take a look around. Just take a look around. How, how many of you battled depression and discouragement and bitterness and you were shackled by the chains of unforgiveness? Maybe you were abused in some way, but now those shackles have been broken and the Spirit of God has set you free. How many of that applies? How many of you that applies to? Would you stand up so we can see the Spirit of God sensationally working in this body right now? Take a look around. And finally, how many of you, 
How many of you have come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior since you've been attending this body? Would you stand up so we can see the sensational work of God in your life? You've gotten saved since you're here. What else do you need to see? Really, what else do you need to see? You look at these brothers and sisters and you see the miraculous work of God in this body. Wow. Would you give these folks a hand for being willing to do that? Can't see my notes. I'm crying in my one good eye and I don't have another one. That's, uh, where am I? There we go. That is the sensational work of God in this body. Am I saying God doesn't do this? No, he does that other stuff. You talk to some folks who come to faith out of Islam, God's given visions. God gives dreams. God gives gifts. But the greater work, you remember when, when when John the Baptist sent word back to Jesus and said, tell me if you're the one. What did he say? He talked about the work that he had done. When you see the work of Christ in the lives of these people, that's a sensational happening. It's amazing. It's amazing. So Jesus is proclaimed by Peter. Peter begins a sermon. Jesus is the first mention. Jesus is the last mention. He's everything in between. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. These are the people who have killed Jesus. He's in Jerusalem. These are the people who have persecuted the disciples. In Jerusalem, this is where they've scattered to the backwoods. Now Peter stands up before them and he says, God has attested to you by miracles and signs and wonders as you saw in your own midst. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew that Jesus would die. There's a theology out there called open theism. It says God doesn't know everything in advance, basically, is a, a brief description of that. But this verse refutes that. that, that, that that's a terrible theology. God didn't look down from heaven, see Jesus being crucified, and say, I can't believe that's happening. He knew it. It was by his predetermined plan. Well, what do you mean? He had a hand in the death of Christ? Yes, he did, because he sent his son to this planet so that he might die on our behalf so we might have eternal life. And he says there was some divine responsibility, but he says you nailed him to a cross. He turns to the people who had persecuted him, the people who crucified him, and he said you nailed him to the cross. You're guilty. You're guilty. When you look at that verse, he says, he was put to death by godless men, but, and I love what verse 24 says, and God raised him again, putting an end to the agony of death. I've circled that verse. I've drawn a line down to verse 32. I've circled that verse. Then Jesus, God, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Verse 32, he says, you killed him, but God raised him. You killed him, but he's alive. You killed him. But he sits at the right hand of the Father right now, verse 33. And so when we look at this particular Peter's sermon here, he's saying, you, the people in Jerusalem, you crucified the Savior. You godless people, you put him to death. You put him to death. But he's alive right now. He's alive right now. In fact, look at verse 29. He, he quotes a psalm of David. And he says that God won't allow him to stay in a grave. In fact, in verse 29, Brother and I may confidently say to you regarding our patriarch David, he died, he was buried, and we go to his tomb. His tomb is with us to this day. 
You want to go see where David is buried? You can see it. If you come to Jerusalem with Bev and I, you go to Garden's tomb, and you go look in the tomb, and guess what's there? Nothing. It's empty. Jesus is not buried in a tomb because he burst out of that tomb, and he's alive today. And that's why we gather together. That's why we worship. That's why people can stand, because he has made an eternal difference and given an abundant life to those who trust him and those who walk with him. You look at this and go, wow. Look at what he's done. Look at the price he paid and what was done. Now, where is Peter doing this? Where is he doing this? He said, he looked ahead, he spoke of verse 31, of the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus Christ, God raised up again, we are all witnesses. He's doing it in the streets of Jerusalem. All somebody had to do was say, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Wait a minute. Look what we have. Look what we have. The dead body of Christ. If Christ's cadaver could have been produced, Christianity would have been stillborn. He's in the streets of Jerusalem. These are the people that stood opposed to him. These are the people that didn't believe. These are the people that said crucify him. And he stands there saying, you know he's alive. And nobody produces a body. Nobody says, wait a minute, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. He's dead. You want to come to the tomb? Let's go look at it. Nobody drags him out to the garden tomb. Nobody produces a cadaver because that Jesus, who is dead, God raised him, verse 33. Therefore he exalted him to the right hand and he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Once again, that was poured out. Then look at verse 36. So let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He's Lord and Christ. That is, he's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's also the Christos, the Messiah. He is Lord and Christ. And then Peter drives the dagger in a little deeper. This one that you crucified. God has sent his son. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. And you killed him. You killed him. Wow. Peter's message literally is penetrating. Because in the next verse it says, this message pierced their heart, stabbed literally. Stabbed to the heart. And they cried out, what do we do? What do we do? Brethren, what do we do? And Peter turned to them and he said, repent. Repent, verse 38 Let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says the first thing you have to do is metanoia. That's the word Peter used. You need to metanoia. It it means a person who's headed in this direction he turns around and goes in the other direction. He changes his mind and direction about something. Specifically changes his mind and his direction about who Jesus is. He is the Lord and he is the Christos. Repent because you've not believed that. Repent. Then he goes on and he says, repent. And then he says, each one of you be baptized. See, after you repent, you're going to take a public stand. That's what baptism is. It's a public stand of Christ alive in you. And then it says, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, people have looked at this verse and say, aha, You have to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins to truly be a believer. 
So repentance and baptism go hand in hand. In fact, if you're not baptized for the repentance of your sins, then you're not truly saved. You have to repent and be baptized. Baptism is part of the salvation formula. There are those that teach that. It's called baptismal regeneration, that the baptism is part of the salvation package. And unless you are trusting in Christ and that baptism, then you are indeed not saved. Is that true? Sure sounds like it. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. What do you do with that? How do you explain that? Well, first thing you have to do is compare Scripture to Scripture. You have to look through the whole counsel of the Word of God. The whole counsel of the Word of God teaches that salvation is in Christ alone. For instance, Peter's speaking a little later in the same book written by Luke. Peter's the speaker. He's a speaker in Acts. He's a speaker in Acts 10. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes and is baptized. No, it's not there. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. So it's only belief, Peter. Paul speaks in Acts 13, 38. I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Jesus, nothing else. Jesus is speaking. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, one only son, whoever believes in him and is baptized should not... No, whoever believes in him. Let me ask you a little different way. If baptism was necessary for salvation... Don't you think Jesus would have been baptizing a lot of people? How many people did Jesus baptize? It's not a trick question. How many people did Jesus baptize? How many? None. No evidence Jesus baptizing. If baptism was part of salvation, don't you think Paul would have been baptizing people left and right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I mean, Paul, he was not really good about keeping stats like some churches are. He says, oh, I baptized so-and-so and so-and-so, and and that's all I baptized. Oh, no, really, I baptized this other family too. If baptism was necessary for salvation, don't you think Jesus and Paul would have been baptizing people all over the place? See, the Greek word ice, which says for the forgiveness of sins, can mean because of, repent, and be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. I think that's a better way to see it, to understand it, and to translate it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. It's only through Christ. It's only through faith in him that you are saved. He saved us not because of righteous things we've done. Even if you do good things that are righteous, that does not secure salvation for you. It's only faith in Christ and him and him alone. And so Peter stands up and he proclaims to these folks, they say, what must we do? And he says, you repent, you be baptized. And you'll receive two things, the forgiveness of sins and the Spirit of God. When you repent, you receive the Holy Spirit. So what happens, look at verse 41. 3,000 people profess their faith in the Savior. Instant church. TVC has about that many folks who attend on a Sunday. Between youth and kids and folks in the auditorium, in one day, that many people get saved. And they're baptized. Peter's fingers were waterlogged by the end of the day, no doubt. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Two things. We accept it and we share it. We accept the good news of the gospel. Some of you are here today and you are trusting in Christ plus something else. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's faith in Christ and Christ alone. It's not Christ plus anything. 
It's Christ alone. You've been trying to earn God's favor. You've been trying to work for God's favor. You've been trying to work your way to heaven. It doesn't happen that way. It happens when you place your faith in Christ, in Christ alone. For some of you today, I hope you're saying, brother, what must we do? And I will look at you and say, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent so your sins might be forgiven. Secondly, We need not only accept this message, we need to share it. When's the last time you spoke to someone in New Jerusalem about Jesus? Last time you spoke to someone in New Jerusalem about Jesus. We talk about all kinds of things. You talk about the weather, you talk about the news, talk about the upcoming election. We don't talk about college football. You talk about red apple sales in the mall. You talk about your kids, your grandkids, you talk about your spouse, you talk about your work, you talk about your savings, you talk about your money, you talk about your bills. You talk about Jesus, one who gave his life for you, one who's alive at the right hand of the Father, one who sent his spirit to indwell you. He said, I must leave so the spirit might come. So you have to accept him. Then you talk about him. Just share what he is, who he is, and what he's done for you. And you start where you're most afraid, your Jerusalem. It's easy to go to another country and talk about Jesus. And it's easy to go to another city and talk about Jesus. But with your family and your friends and your colleagues and your co-workers, to talk about the Savior. Worship team, would you guys come up? Peter Cartwright is one of my great heroes of early American history. He was a pastor. He was a Methodist circuit-riding pastor. He'd been TVC for any length of time. I've used this at least a dozen times. Peter Cartwright was preaching as a guest speaker at a church one day. It was a large church, large congregation. And as he got up to preach, one of the men of the church leaned over and said, Mr. Cartwright, be careful what you say because President Andrew Jackson is here today. So Peter Cartwright got up in the pulpit. These are his words. President Jackson, we're grateful that you're here today. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. I have this to say. President Jackson, you go to hell if you haven't repented of your sins. (laughs) Wow. That's taking the bull by the horns. The congregation was shocked. They wondered how the president would respond. After the service, the president sought out Peter Cartwright, the guest speaker, and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could conquer the world. Let me tell you something today. I'm not Peter Cartwright, and you're not Andrew Jackson. But if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you're gone to hell. That's the message. I can't sugarcoat it. I can't give any hope apart from Jesus. But I can tell you, if you haven't accepted him personally, you're going to spend eternity in a Christless place where you don't want to be. And if you have, how can you not tell other people about this one who paid it all? Father, we're grateful grateful for a Savior who paid the price of our salvation. Savior who's alive, sitting at your right hand, has been resurrected. 
this day we honor him and we worship him. If you don't know Christ as Savior, I pray this morning that you've seen the sensational work of the Spirit of God in the lives of these people that stood up. And he offers to you that same salvation. And many of you know Christ, but maybe you're still in bondage. Maybe the message today is given up for each of us who know Christ. He says, share the good news of the gospel in your Jerusalem, your Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We want to conclude our worship this way. I want to honor Jesus. I want to honor Jesus who paid the price for your salvation. So let's stand together and let's sing to the one who paid it all on our behalf.
love that you have come to pay the debt that we could not pay. That we might have life. That we might spend eternity with you. Lord, we love you. And we are grateful that your grace is sufficient to cover all of our sin, all our mistakes. Thank you for being the perfect Father whose love is perfect. Empower us, Lord, through your Spirit that we might honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we go. Amen. You're dismissed.